Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. They wanted a Jewish state from the Nile to the Euphrates, with a base of Migdash at its center. In 1944, they assassinated the British Minister of State in the Middle East in Cairo, Egypt. In 1948, they assassinated a UN official in Jerusalem who was pressuring Israel to relinquish territory. That same decade, they also sought ways of blowing up Buckingham Palace. They are the fighters and leaders of Lehi, the most radical and the most fascinating of the three underground groups fighting the British in Palestine in the late 1940s. Zev Golan, a historian, has written several books on Lehi and has also translated the gripping memoirs of Israel Eldad, one of Lehi's three leaders, the other two being Natan Yelin Moore and Yitzhak Shamir, who became Prime Minister of Israel in 1983. Zev, welcome to the program. When I was a kid, I knew very little about Lehi, and it was only when I read Eldad's memoirs shortly after you translated them in 2008 that I had any conception of the grandiosity of its vision and actions. For people who aren't so familiar with Lehi, give us, if you will, a sense of what it wanted and how it differed from its more famous ally, the Ergun. The Lehi, which translates in English as the fighters for the freedom of Israel, followed the vision of its founder, uh, Avraham Stern. Stern was actually a member of the Irgun High Command and pushed that organization from fighting Arabs, which it had done in the 30s, to fighting the British. And so you could encapsulate his vision with, we got to get the British out of the country at any cost uh, and as soon as possible. That differentiated him from almost everyone else who found either good points in British rule in Palestine or who thought the time was never right to fight the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And Stern was absolutely committed to the idea of Jewish sovereignty immediately, uh, which would solve a whole slew of other problems. But for him, the main problem it would solve is that the homeland was enslaved and the homeland had to be freed. So Stern's view of fighting and of the immediacy of the problem and the immediacy of a need for a solution was something that put him at odds with everyone else. He also had, as you put it, a grandiose vision of where we would go once this was accomplished. He saw the fight for Jewish liberation as not being only against the British, but as being a perpetual, a never-ending revolution in Jewish life, which would eventually take us to what some people would call uh, in Hebrew, Yemei Mashiach, or Harita Yamim, and which other people would, would call redemption, or total ingathering of the exiles and building the temple and uh, freeing Israel from any yoke of any foreigner. Last month, many Zionists celebrated the 75th anniversary of the UN's decision to create two states in Palestine, one Jewish and one Arab. This date, November 29, 1947, is considered seminal in the history of Zionism, as you know, of course. Yet Israel al-Dad writes in his memoirs that he was essentially depressed on this day. Why? He said this was like a game. It was silly waiting for uh, whether a country that no one had ever heard of in South America would vote for a Jewish state or not, as if the history and the the destiny of the Jewish people depended on the vote of a country that no one ever heard of. Uh, To him, this was like dancing around the golden calf when you celebrate 
the fact that some other country recognizes you. You need to recognize yourself. You need to know who you are and respect yourself and not need other people to respect you. And it wasn't the UN that Eldad felt was giving us the country. It was the fighters for freedom who forced the British out and it forced the creation of a Jewish state. So the whole idea of uh, enshrining the 29th of November, the date that the UN voted, or the 2nd of November when Balfour issued his declaration, any of these dates, was just to him irrelevant almost, because what mattered was the fight for freedom and that they won the fight. But then, like now, people would say, probably, and now for sure they do, what do you mean you need the world without the world? Israel can't survive. What's your response? What will his response have been? Well, of course, there's political considerations. Uh, I, I'm not uh, trying to say the word, but and I'm speaking, uh, so to speak, for Eldad, who's not, who's obviously dead. But his his view was, and Stern's view was that if Israel is powerful, if the Jewish people are powerful, uh, then naturally they will have allies. If countries don't support other countries who are in trouble because they want to be philanthropic, because they want to be generous, but rather they do this because they have interests. Countries don't have uh, ideals, so to speak. They have interests when it comes to foreign policy. And so if Israel or the Jewish state, since it didn't have the name Israel when Stern was there, would be a, an empire or would be a kingdom or would be a power, as Stern put it, he called it a power, a large power, a sea power, a land power. Uh, I, I don't know whether he imagined an air power. Uh, as we are today in the Middle East, then other countries will want to support the Jewish state not because they like the name of the prime minister, whether it's, it's Bibi or, or Lapid or, or something else, but because they need whatever they need in the Middle East. And the way to get it is to support the most powerful country in the Middle East, which is Israel. So that was their view. And that is the way to get other people to support you, not holding out a hand saying we need more money, money to help uh, immigrants come or we need money to help feed the poor or we need money for we need money we need money we need money this is a schnorr and they were not schnorrers uh, they said if you blow up the british oil installations for instance in the 40s in israel then the soviets uh, will support you because the soviets don't want the british in the middle east and if you fight uh, you know someplace else and you make yourself a strong state then the americans and the soviets and a whole bunch of other countries will eventually support you because they recognize that they need you which is eventually what did happen. I mean, America only really started supporting Israel in any great measure after the Six-Day War when they realized, oh, Israel actually is a powerful country. 48 and 67, Israel had essentially no American help. And I always say when people say, oh, you need America, I say, well, if Israel survived its first two wars when it was extremely weak, it certainly could survive today. But I, just to clarify, though, so in 47, basically Eldad's view and Lechi's view was that we were kicking out the British anyways. Had the UN voted against us, it wouldn't have mattered. Is, is that actually true historically? That it would not have mattered one way or the other? Well, it would have had grave historical implications uh, as you and I look back at that period. Of course, it would have had implications and effects that they would have had to have dealt with. But yes, uh, 100%, what you said is, is right. Their view was, uh, we are the fighters. We are forcing the British out. We are creating the vacuum that either the Arabs or the Jewish people will fill. And the Jewish people will fight and the Arabs will fight. And he who wins will control the territory. That was their view when the war started. Before the war started, their view of the Arabs was somewhat mixed. They, some people thought they could ally themselves with the Arabs to get the British out, which didn't pan out. But yeah, they, they definitely felt that they were the ones who were, they and the Irgun and, 
and to some extent to Haganah at, at some point, what were determining history and not, not the United Nations. Historically, is that also accurate? One cannot say what would happen if the UN voted against us, but there is no doubt that the Lehi and the Irgun would have continued fighting. And there's no doubt that the Arabs would have attacked. And there's no doubt that the Haganah and the Irgun and Lehi would have fought them. And there's no doubt the British would have left. So those things are kind of, um, the question is what America would have done. We're, you know, it's, it's a hard to say what would have happened if the Americans, as it was, put on a boycott of arms for, for Israel. The first arms that reached us here were smuggled. Eventually, they smuggled boats from America. They, they certainly smuggled planes from Europe. Uh, we managed to get things with Russian permission. But I think that the British were tired. They were beaten. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing here anymore. Their soldiers and policemen were getting killed, really, for no reason. And uh, they could not control the country. That's what they said. The, the British didn't say when they finally left in their summation. Uh, they didn't uh, announce we're leaving because... The United Nations voted, and so uh, we're happy that the vote went through and, and we're going, and we wish the Jewish people good luck. They, they said we have you know, 90,000 soldiers in the country or something like 90,000 forces in the country, and we can't control it. We can't stop the violence, and the violence was coming from the Irgun and the Lehi. So they were saying we can't stop the, the Jewish freedom fighters or terrorists, as they would say, and thus we have to leave. So the Arabs would have fought. So I don't know. You know, They certainly would have been consequences if the UN voted against creating the state. But look, take, take it from the other point of view. As you said, the UN voted to create two states, an Arab state and a Jewish state. And the Arab state was not created because essentially they attacked the Jewish state and didn't, didn't settle for um, what the Jewish people were willing to settle for. So I, I would use that to say that a UN declaration is not enough to create the facts on the ground. The Jewish fighters were, in that particular instance, a necessary and a sufficient cause, as Aristotle would, would say, to create the Jewish state. I don't think there's a more fascinating chapter in Israel Aldad's memoirs, and I keep on mentioning the memoirs because I would encourage people to read them because it's among the top five best books I've read in my entire life. Although, I don't know if you're aware, I went on Amazon recently and I said copies are unavailable, so I don't know if... I, I don't have much control over Amazon, but the book is, uh, the, it's called The First Tithe, T-I-T-H-E, and it covers his first 10 years in the country, which is why he calls it a tithe from the time he got here in, in 40 or 41 and, until 50 or 51, which covers the underground years and the beginning of the state. And it was published by the Jabotinsky Institute in Tel Aviv, and they have copies. So anyone who wants to can contact the Jabotinsky Institute in Tel Aviv, and, and copies are available. Okay, thank you for that. And I always say, and you'll forgive me, well, it's not your book. So I always say, terrible title, great book. Maybe in Hebrew, Maseri Shon rings better, but in English, it doesn't ring so well. But it's fascinating memoirs. Anyways, so I don't think there's a more fascinating chapter in those memoirs than the one on the Altalena, which was, of course, an Irgun ship that was bringing, that brought badly needed weapons and fighters from Europe to Israel in the middle of the Jewish state's war of independence. Ben-Kurian famously ordered the IDF to fire on the ship, which it did, and 16 Irgun fighters died. Menachem Begin, head of the Irgun, ordered his fighters not to fight back and later took great pride in his decision. Eldad, though, thought Begin had made a great mistake. Why? Well, because Eldad was, was a revolutionary in the mold of Stern. And to him and the people who were fighting with him, what was needed was that the revolutionaries would control the country. 
And to him, the amount of weapons that was on that ship, which was huge, would allow the armies both to conquer more territory and save more soldiers who were being killed, and also give, as he saw it, an impetus to the revolutionaries taking over the country from the, as he would call them, the counter-revolutionaries, the people we know and respect today as the founders of the state, Ben-Gurion and such, and they would take power from them. And so he wanted Begin to declare an uprising, and he wanted Begin to use this. Uh, you know, revolutionaries exploit circumstances. And so he thought, and I believe he, if you'll pardon me, I think as a historian, I have to say that he exaggerated, he and, and his fellow fighters who agreed with him, not all, not all of them did, but exaggerated the power of their revolutionary spirit and their fighters. And they really did not have a chance of taking over the country. Had Begin fought back, there would have, as Begin saw correctly, been a bloodbath, and it would have been a civil war. The question of how many Lehi soldiers, the Urgunis, would have followed them in fighting Ben-Gurion or fighting the Haganah is certainly debatable. But we know from Eldad's own memoirs, which you've quoted, how he was terribly disappointed when he called the fighters to the flag, so to speak, to come that night and meet, and the best of them didn't come. The best of them were in the Israeli army, were fighting in battles, or were getting ready to fight in battles, and would not leave their units to come for an underground meeting as to how to take power, or how to go to Jerusalem, or how to, how to liberate the holy city while the army was sending them someplace else. He didn't have that following anymore once the Israeli army was set up. Begin was far more emotional all through his whole life than Eldad when it came to making policy, and far more averse to fighting Jews. They had both escaped the Holocaust together. They both fled literally together, playing chess on their way out of the places they were running from, from the Nazis. So they both experienced the same thing. But Begin was shaken by that emotionally. And I, I had conversations with him, so I know this, that you know, 40 years later, he was still, 30 years later, I should say, when I spoke to him, he was still emotionally racked by what had happened to the Jews of Europe. And the idea of shooting another Jew to him was, was something that, uh, you know, th this was not to be done. You couldn't start a war. You couldn't have Jews shooting Jews. You couldn't kill more Jews. To Eldad, as a revolutionary, you know, you look at what the Russians did in Russia, revolutionaries kill the people in power. That's what they do. So he was less averse to that. I want you to explain, but before you explain, maybe I'll try to instill a little bit of my own, because I read the memoirs. I mean, his view, and we know historically, Yerushalayim was lost to the Jordanians. And we got it back in the Six-Day War, so now everything is wonderful. And we forget that it was very possible that till today we, we would be living without the old city, which is Harabayas, which is the heart of, of the country. And so Eldad at that point saw Yerushalayim being lost. He saw Ben-Gurion and company not doing enough to win the, the old city. And that was part of why he, he thought that we really need to be taking over power at this point. We can't let him run the country. If he doesn't have the sense to conquer the old city then something's really wrong here. We need to take over. So that, that was part of it. I don't know if there was more to it, but if you could explain why it was so important for him to take over. Yeah, certainly. It, it was certainly on a personal matter. Certainly not, not for power, for power's sake. It was to accomplish the ends that Lehi had set. In other words, he saw that the Haganah had tried to prevent uh, the Haganah, the Jewish agency, the entire Jewish establishment, which later became the leadership of the state had tried to prevent the war against the British. 
had tried to keep the British in the country, had tried to minimize Zionism instead of maximizing it. And so in order to ensure that the entire homeland would be liberated at the time, I don't know that they were limiting their view to Jerusalem. There was certainly a desire to have the Temple Mount uh, and Jerusalem as part of Israel. But there was also a desire to liberate up to the Jordan River and even beyond the Jordan River. And so it was clear to him that the people who had been fighting these goals for the past 10 or 20 years were not going to adopt these goals now. And so the idea of taking power was not because he thought he could do a better job of running the housing ministry, but rather because he thought he could do a better job of liberating the country. And that's what was necessary at the time. In the memoirs, actually, he writes as like sort of like a, a bit of the He says, even if you did not want to start a civil war, he says you still should have shot back because all those weapons were so vital to fighting the Arabs. You should have shot back, secured the beach, brought all the weapons on the beach and left the weapons there, and let the Haganah take the weapons. But at least just to secure the weapons, which were so vital for the war effort, even for that reason alone, you should have shot back, not have all those weapons being blown up on the ship. You know, I definitely have a, a long history of, of a relationship with Eldad. But you have to look back and say that that was wrong. Uh, it wouldn't have happened that way. And I think as Eldad got older, he understood that too. Had they tried to, first of all, they couldn't have secured the beach. They were surrounded by the IDF. To secure the beach, they would have needed all the Irgun fighters in the country to leave their units and come and fight with the Irgun. And that wasn't going to happen. Certainly wouldn't have happened with the Lehi people. So that's already a premise that didn't work. Then you say, okay, you're going to secure the beach. You're going to put the weapons on there. What's the IDF going to do while you're securing the beach? It's not like, you know, you're, you're talking about an island, you know, in the Philippines. You're talking about Tel Aviv. So the, the, the Palmach and the Haganah and the Israeli army are all around you, by sea, by land, everywhere. And, and to secure the beach would have, would have been, it's not like you would have secured the beach and the enemy, so to speak, the Haganah, the enemy, the IDF, would have gone home. Home was there. They would have continued shooting. And even if they had done so, I'm pretty sure Ben-Gurion would have blown up the weapons anyway because he didn't want the weapons. Ben-Gurion was a, a, a very um, pragmatic and a very, um, I don't know what the proper word would be right now, but he was quite focused on staying in power. And so he wanted that ship and its weapons out of the way because not only didn't he want the weapons going to the Irgun, but he didn't want the Irgun getting credit for bringing the weapons because that would have lent more support to Begin and the Irgun. And, you know, in the Knesset, he wouldn't mention Begin's name for many years. You would say the man sitting in the front row. He wouldn't mention his name. You know, it was very, he was very dead set on keeping Begin and the Irgun out of power. So um, he wouldn't have just let it pass by. Interesting. Um, somewhere in his memoirs, Eldad writes that Lechi's enemies sometimes said about him and his colleagues something to the effect of what gives you the right to plan assassinations and terror attacks against the British who elected you. Last night, I looked up the ages of Shamir Eldad and Yellen Moore, the, th- the three leaders of Lehi, and they were all their early to mid-30s. So that's pretty young. So what indeed gave these 30-year-olds the right to make such weighty decisions? Well, indeed, he mentions in his memoirs that there's three people, and sometimes only two, and one of them was arrested at various times, sitting in a room, dark room somewhere, making decisions that would determine the fate of the country. And we had more power than, you know, the high commissioner of the British or the leader of the Sochnut, the Jewish agency. So why is that? What, what gave them the right? What gave them the right is the consciousness that they were freedom fighters and they were fighting for the nation. And uh, Shamir told me when I asked him a similar question, Shamir told me, you can liberate a people against its will. 
even if the, you know, we don't need a majority vote. We don't have to ask the Jewish people if they want to be liberated. What if the, you know, what if they didn't want to leave Europe? Does that mean you couldn't take them out of Europe? Well, if you had taken them out of Europe, it would have saved their lives. They may not have known that, but you could have, you could have saved their lives. Same thing here. If you can free the homeland and create a place where the Jews of Europe could come before, during, and eventually after the Holocaust, and if you can free the homeland and, and make it a power that becomes a place for the Jews to ingather and protect their own future and determine their own future, then you don't take a poll and you don't take a vote. It's not a dem- democratic thing about whether we should have a state. There are certain questions that are beyond the power of votes and the survival. I heard this not from Shamir. I heard this from an American political scientist. The question of the survival of nations is not a, a question for a vote. So that was what gave them the right, that they were conscious of their freedom and that they were conscious of having to liberate uh, the people. Um, When you do something like that, you have to, Eldad told me this. I also heard it from the same thing exactly from Tahomi, who had founded the Urgun some uh, 10 years before Lehi was founded. They both said that when you do something like that, you have to represent somebody who's offering an alternative, political alternative and willing to take power. In other words, you can't be an individual who sits in his house and says, well, you know, I think that we need to liberate, I don't know, let's say Transjordan today, what is the kingdom of Jordan? So this person who's sitting in his room and wants to do something like that is going to go throw a bomb at somebody to liberate Transjordan. Whether or not he has a chance of doing it, he has, he has no right to do it because he doesn't represent anyone. He has to be a political uh, force and a political movement that represents someone and that offers a political alternative. And this is what they were doing. And this was right or wrong. I'm just telling you what they thought, um, such that in the 30s, when the Ergunists, the rank and file, wanted to fight back against the Arab terrorists who were, uh, between 1936 and 1939, Arab rioters, terrorists, fighters, whatever you want to call them, killed 501 Jews, mostly civilians, a large number of children and, and such. That They attacked nurseries, schools, hospitals, And the official Jewish policy was not to fight back, to show the British that we are holier than they are. Our weapons are cleaner than their weapons. And the Irgun believed in in fighting back and hitting, using terror to fight terror. Again, right or wrong, this is what happened. And the rank and file went to Tahomi, who was the commander in chief, and said, we want to have reprisal attacks. And Tahomi says, if you have reprisal attacks, you are going to, at some point, skirmish with the British. It's, you, you can't keep blowing up Arab markets or, or shooting into Arab villages if that's what you want to do and think that the British are not going to intervene. You're going to have to fight the British. Are you ready to fight the British? Do you have the backing, the political ability to, to take on that task, to, to start a war that is going to go on? And his view was that you have to ask Jabotinsky. Now, Jabotinsky was, so to speak, a politician. He wasn't a military commander, and he was in Europe. But he was the head of the revisionist political party, the, the alternative to the leaders of, with Ben-Gurion. And so Tahomi went to Jabotinsky and asked him and said, listen, I'm willing to resign from the Ogun and take 50 people who will fight Arabs with terrorist tactics. Will you give me the authority to do so, the political authority to do so, knowing that eventually we'll fight the British? I said to him when he told me, Tahomi told me this, I met him in California. And he told me this. I said, were you serious? You'd really take 50 people and start a terrorist war and leave the, leave the command of being commander of the Irgun? He said to me, one did not joke when talking with Jabotinsky. In other words, he was serious. And Jabotinsky said no. 
He wasn't ready to do that. So Tahomi refused to do it. And there was still a goodness to fought and Tahomi even authorized one or two attacks to let some steam off. But essentially, eventually, he left the Irgun. He went back to the Haganah because he felt you needed a political movement. You needed a large group. So the idea was, it's a very long answer to your question, that they took upon themselves the authority because they felt that they were the political alternative. And there was no alternative on the ground but to fight. Interesting. So in other words, like no lone terrorist attacks. It has to be as part of a movement with a, with a goal in mind, essentially. Yes. Okay, I often wonder about Eldad. He lived such a glorious life in his 30s. He played such a pivotal role in the creation of the Jewish state. Compared to those years, the next 50 years of his life really pale in comparison. You knew him personally in the 1980s and 90s. Was he happy with the way his life turned out? Did he try to accomplish other glorious goals but was just unsuccessful? Well, first of all, he translated all of the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche into Hebrew. And that's a pretty big accomplishment. And, and I think he was very, very satisfied with that accomplishment. It's not, a, it's not something that took one day. It took him years. Uh, he was doing other things, too. So I will quote Nietzsche on that point, which you say in the, his book, Zarathustra, which is his most famous book. He says, was that life? In other words, he looks back on his life and he, and not Nietzsche, but Zarathustra, wants people to live such that when they get to the end of their lives, they'll look back and, and they'll say, was that life? seeing it's all these problems and it's good things, but it's bad things. He says, well, once more, let's do it again. And he says, that's how you should live. You should live with, want to relive your life and do everything again. I think Eldad felt that way. I, I honestly do. I don't think he was satisfied with where Israel was. I mean, he certainly wasn't. He certainly didn't accomplish all of his own personal goals. He, he ran for the Knesset. He didn't get in. He tried to run for the Knesset. He didn't get in. He had trouble finding publishers for some of his books. But he knew that he influenced a whole generation. He knew that his writings, uh, his newspaper articles, uh, he kept writing. I won't say that he, towards the very, very end of his life, he didn't have second thoughts about whether his writings had accomplished as much as he would have wanted. But I think he felt that he lived his whole life in commitment to his ideal, and he couldn't do otherwise. I think he would have been much happier seeing a Jewish state that represented more of his values. But to quote him again in his memoirs, towards the end of his memoirs, he says, you know, Jacob got an, uh, our father, our, the patriarch, Jacob wakes up in the morning and finds out that his wife has been switched. And instead of marrying uh, his beloved Rachel, he ended up with Leah. And, um, and he works another seven years to get Rachel. But Eldad uses this as a, as a metaphor for the state. He said, we wanted Rachel. We wanted our view of the mother of, of the state. And in the end, it turned out to be Leah. Somebody switched it on us, and we got this alternative, which was not what we had been working or, or hoping for. But he said, nonetheless, look, Leah is the mother of kings. I mean, from Leah came kings. So don't underestimate the value of what you have, even if it's not what you are actually shooting for. So all of those things, I think, went into his personal memories and his personal makeup. He didn't live in the past. He, he told me he, was, he didn't respect former underground fighters who spent their whole lives reliving the underground days. It wasn't something that he was proud of his role. He was happy he did it. He certainly wrote and taught about it, spoke, uh, speeches, books. Uh, but to him, it was one part of his life. And, and, and writing and, and educating and teaching was a longer period of his life than that. 
what was the relationship between Ergon Lechi and the religious community? If I'm not mistaken, I just have the impression, based probably on things I read over the years, that there were religious youth who were attracted to the underground fight, and they were more attracted to the Ergun and Lechi than they were to Haganah. Is that true? All three groups had religious fighters within them. The Ergun was made up, I, won't, I don't know if it's a majority, but for argument's sake, half of them were what we would call traditional, modern Orthodox, uh, whatever the word is today. They were Sephardic, much more than the Haganah. And the Sephardim are traditional people. You know, they all went to shul on Shabbos. I remember Absalom Chaviv, it's not Sephardic, but Absalom Chaviv, I remember telling me how his brother told me, Israel Chaviv, told me how they came to him in shul. He was davening in shul and they would tap him on the shoulder and he would have to leave shul to go on an operation and then come back. They were all in shul uh, for Shabbos. They were all davening, you know, this was how they grew up. And so the whole organization was very traditional. Even Begin was very traditional. In terms of the, the Lechi, Lechi did indeed have a, a religious unit in the 48 war. Until then, it, it didn't have a separate religious unit. But what Lechi had was in 43 or 44, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when, but Rabbi Moshe Segel, who was the leader of a group called Brit Chashmonaim, they were a religious educational movement that was semi-underground. In other words, they were legal, they were recognized by the British, they were recognized by the Jewish establishment, but their youth were being taught revolutionary ideas, and when they weren't in their clubhouse, they were going out doing things, pasting up underground posters or or calling for war against the British. And in 43 or 44, Shamir, who has escaped from jail, Yitzhak Shamir, disguises himself as a rabbi, grows a beard, comes to Jerusalem and meets with Moshe Segal in a synagogue. They open up the Gemaras and they talk about the, the war. And Segal agrees to transfer his fighters from Brit Hashemonaim to Lehi. And this puts in one shot 100, maybe even 150 religious people into Lehi. When Lehi didn't have a thousand members, Lehi maybe had two, maybe 300 people. So there was an extremely strong religious component in Lehi too, all of these Hasmonians who went to Lehi. It was easy to identify with the goals that Stern set. His language was the language of the Tanakh. The basis for his claims were from the Bible. In his 18 principles, this declaration that he publishes to get people to understand what the movement is about, he quotes the Bible as his, his basis, as his justification. He doesn't quote foreign sources or the United Nations. The Irgun has a map that was drawn by the British and the French and the, United, and the League of Nations, and Stern has a map that was drawn by God, you know, the Euphrates to the Nile. So, so yeah, they have this, <clears throat> this definite religious component such that in 48, when the war begins with the Arabs, when the Arabs attack, yeshiva students join the Stern group to fight in the war. And there's people who later became important rabbis in the States, Rabbi Ephraim uh, Greenblatt, I think, who joins Lehi to fight here before he becomes this important rabbi in the States. Uh, rabbi Avram Ravitz, who uh, becomes a principal and later a member of Knesset, representing the religious parties in the Knesset. And so in, in Jerusalem, you've got all these yeshiva students with payas, learning how to use guns, and fighting in, on the Jerusalem front for Lehi. They really had a very strong yeshivish element in their fight. All right, my last question is, the state of Israel today is worlds away from the state of Israel that Lehi envisioned. Not only does Israel not have a base Hamikdash, it doesn't even allow Jews to pray at the gravesites of Yitzchak, 
Avinu and Rivka Imenu in Marzah Machpelah more than 10 days a year. So how do we go from the state that we have now to the state, kind of state envisioned by Lechi? I don't know. No, I, seriously, and Eldad didn't know either. It's a, it's a question. You know, Eldad believed, and, and I believe strongly, that education is, is necessary, that it's not a matter of taking, with given the political, even, even if a revolutionary attitude were possible, which I'm not saying it is, practically speaking, it's not to think that you're going to wrest power from the Israeli establishment, the Israeli political establishment, without Jews fighting Jews in a war which would be as bloody as any conflict in history involving the Jewish people. So you don't have the option of saying, well, I'm going to, you know, God forbid, I'm just, I'm just saying this. You don't have the option of saying you're going to knock off a politician and then take power. It's not going to happen. The army won't follow you, and the the political establishment won't follow you, and the people won't follow you. Not even the religious people, never mind the secular people. It wouldn't happen. So this might not have been the case in 48, hypothetically, but it's certainly been the case since. And so, therefore, you're left really with one option, which is the option of education, which is getting people inspired by the goals that you set that you believe are, are correct, and educating them for it. I'll give you an example. You talked about the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. So I met once with Motagur in the Knesset, and Motagur was the uh, general, or I assume he was a general at the time, who freed the Temple Mount in 1967 and famously declared, Harabayit Biadeno, the Temple Mount is in our hands. And that inspired everyone, and everyone was emotionally moved by that. And he was asked once by a former Lehi fighter, Yoshke Eliab, it didn't maybe it occur to you for even a minute, maybe, when you were on the mountain, that you should do away with the Muslim buildings that are there and clear it off and you know make way for it. And Motogur said, absolutely not. It didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to one of my commanders. It didn't occur to one of my soldiers, not for one minute, not before, during, or after the time that we, we got them out. And Eliab's response was, for that, history will judge you. So why do I tell this story? Because today there is a group called the Temple Institute in the old city uh, run by Rabbi Israel Ariel, and they've been making vessels, gold, silver vessels for use in the temple when such time comes that there is a temple or to learn how to make the vessels so they'll be ready to make them when that comes as a fulfillment of the biblical commandment to build a temple and build its vessels. So they're doing, but they have thousands and thousands and thousands of visitors all the time. And they have stuff on the web and stuff like that. And if you talk about the Beit HaMikdash today to the Israeli public, especially to the religious uh, public, there is much more desire for a Beit HaMikdash than there was 20 years ago. There's much more knowledge about what a Beit HaMikdash is than there was 20 years ago. When Eldad wrote an article in the 50s about Temple Mount, he said, I was too early calling for a Beit HaMikdash. I was too early to imagine that the people were ready for it. They weren't ready for the idea. They have to be ready for the idea. And that's what's going, been going on now, for ready for the idea of, of the land of Israel with the Gush Emunim, ready for the idea of the Beit HaMikdash with Rabbi Ariel and Temple Institute, ready with the idea for, for fighting for these loftier goals or long-term goals that Stern and, and Eldad put forth and that Eldad wrote all these books for. And he said that to me once. He said, I don't know how much my books influence people. I said, listen, I'm here because I read your books. 
And your books are the only thing out there that is influencing people because at the time there was nothing else. So, yeah, the answer to, to what you say is there should be books and movies and constant conversation about these issues and these questions, which will get people in the mindset for what we would call, for lack of anything else, Shlema, redemption. That is the spiritual side. But even more basic, when you have now rockets being launched from Gaza, so a normal, healthy response of a nation is to fight back against that nation and, and crush them until they surrender unconditionally. That's what a normal, healthy nation does. Israel does not do that. And most people don't, don't even demand it. They're very happy to go scurrying into bomb shelters, then hiding behind a defensive weapon system, the Iron Dome. And even in the right-wing circles, this is considered a wonderful thing. They love the Iron Dome. And to me, I, I, I never spoke to you or to Eldad, but I'm almost certain that's not the way a normal nationalist thinks. You might use an Iron Dome as part of an offensive strategy, but you don't use it alone as a defensive system and then just hide in a bomb shelter until all the bombs are over and then wait for the next round of bombs to fall. And yet most of the country thinks this is a very normal thing to do. So even on, on a very basic level of survival and having pride as a nation, we don't even have that. And how do we get from there to a normal you know, state of mind? I would disagree with you uh, very strongly Okay, sorry. on your saying, no, I, I respect you. No, I have great respect for you. I would disagree with you very strongly on your assessment that the majority of the people are happy doing this. I think that almost everyone in the country, on the ground, feels that this is an embarrassment and is a danger that needs to be changed. The people who are of the feeling that this is a decent policy and a fair way to live were the people who were running the army and the political setup for the past few decades. They were all educated in the idea that you defend the Israel Defense Forces, which Eldad hated that name, because that's a reminiscent of the Haganah, which felt you defend and you don't shoot until you're shot at. And that's, that's the ideology that underlies the entire basis of the Israeli army. And that is a, what we would say in, in the old Mamalash, and that's a Shanda. And that is what Eldad was certainly opposed to, and Stern and you know, Mew and me and, and most normal people on the ground, the people who live in Sterot, the people who live in around the Gaza Strip, the people who live in the north, in the Galilee, I'm, I'm in the Galilee now, the people who live up here, we don't want rockets falling. We don't want to go to a shelter. And it doesn't matter whether you're religious, right-wing, secular, left-wing, it doesn't matter. Everyone on the ground, school children on the ground, have no understanding of why Israel does or refuses to do what any normal nation would do when it's shot at by the enemy, which is, you know, years ago, the, the goal of fighting a war was to destroy the enemy. And over the past few decades, with various ideologies that have crept into Western countries, including America and including Israel, the idea is you don't destroy the enemy. You know, you want to deal with the enemy. You want to talk to the enemy. You don't want to destroy him. And unfortunately, the people who have been running the Israeli army for a good number of years, decades, have that view. But the people on the ground, you won't find anyone in Sterot, anyone in the Upper Galilee, anyone in, in Jerusalem who feels that way, that that's a good idea. So I disagree. I think the people are ready for a change. And I think that whether they get it or not depends both on the political constellations, whether they have a good alternative, uh, whom to vote for, and then the continued education, which we talked about before. If you inspire people with the idea that you, your weapons are clean and not used in 
which was the Haganah's view in the 30s. Well, then you go up thinking, well, I don't want to use my weapons. You know, it's bad to make me kill my enemy. And if you grow up with the idea that we are independent and anyone who hurts us is, well, to take it a step further, you know, when you hurt us, you're hurting God's name. It's a chilul Hashem. If you kill Jews and the, and the Jews just die, then it's a chilul Hashem. It's, you're hurting God's malchut as well as malchut Yisrael. Well, if that's your view, then you obviously want to go out and do something about it. So it's, I would say that on the one hand, you have to let the leadership express the obvious feelings of the common person in Israel. And the second part is you have to keep educating them to be inspired by the right kind of heroes. Eldad, Yelm, or uh, Shamir, Stern, Begin, you know, Tahomi, these are the right kind of heroes. Okay, well, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you, Elliot, for yours. And I definitely encourage listeners to buy your books, and especially the memoirs. But anything about Lechi and Ragun, you have to have a heart of stone not to be inspired, I think. All right, that does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. Also, don't forget to check out our website, oneversus450.com. Again, that's oneVS450.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can sign up for our educational course to help you fill in the gaps in your education. You can see a weekly chess puzzle, read a weekly parenting column, and more. Thank you for joining us today or this evening, and stay tuned for next week's episode.